You're listening to the Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Hey folks, welcome. But before we get started, a quick announcement. It's August, man. It's August, and we are coming to the last summer school class of the summer. And this is on reading the Bible from the margins with Miguel de la Torre. And hopefully you've gotten educated. Yeah. That's the goal. Getting yourself educated. Educated. But But we still have one left. Wednesday, August 10th. 8 to 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time is reading the Bible from the margins. So, what is this class about? I'll tell you. I'm glad that you asked, Pete. It's a one-night class offering insights on how to read the Bible in a way that honors the unique and helpful perspective of people on the margins, while also engaging in the best in biblical scholarship. I would add, I mean, helpful, valid, Just, just the humanity of it. And, you know, all theology has an adjective, right? As we say around here, it's all important, it's all good, it's all valid, it's all real, it's all true. And we're going to get something from the margins, which is where the Bible tends to speak out of. So, if you miss the first two, you you don't want to miss out on all of them. So, this is your last chance to sign up. And if you got the other two, why would you want to miss out on the third one and, you know, miss a perfect score? And if they miss the others, they can go back and do that anyway. You could do it anyway. Folks, there's no excuse here. That's right. So, go to thebibleforknowingpeople.com front slash summer school to sign up. Now, for today's episode, we are talking the honesty of grief with Amanda Held Opal. Yeah, and she just wrote a book, A Hole in the World, which is about her experience of grief. That's actually a key phrase, the experience of grief, the experience of mourning that she had to process after the death of her sister, Rachel Held Evans. And I, you know, I knew this was going to be a good episode before we even started, but as we got into it, I was really, oh, this sounds so evangelical, I was sort of touched by the depth and the humanity of a discussion Mm-hmm. of grief and by someone who has sort of hacked through the jungle of it all in ways that, uh, you know, I have to say, my, I haven't, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I, I just haven't that way. I've, I mean, I'm, I've been around the block a few times. I've experienced deaths, but not to this degree of just existential pain. Right. right. And, and, and there's, this is not a special or weird thing. It's a normal thing. It's what, talk about the Bible for normal people. This right. Is well, and it's thing. about making room for that in our faith, which for a lot of us, there wasn't room for that growing up. And so, how do we expand our faith understanding in such a way that brings, that we feel valid and we feel comfortable bringing deep pain and suffering to our experience. Yeah, and and even, I mean, I know what you're saying, make room for, there's another level of restructuring our faith so that this is woven into right. it, right? right? Which is what you meant, right? Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so, it's not just tacking it on. It's like, let's make room for this. Well, because, to make room, we will often have to rearrange all the furniture. Or burn or- the house down. <laughs> Or that, or that. I have an 800-square-foot apartment, but I want a swimming pool, so how's that going to work? Well, you got to tear the stupid thing down, so okay. All right, right, let's get into it. My faith absolutely has met me in my sorrow. The Bible met me in my sorrow, not in the way I thought it would, but in a way I needed, in a way that was real and true. It was like true in my bones. And I can say that now that I'm a little bit farther down the road, but it it took some relearning and rereading and re-understanding. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. 
Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code normal people. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hey, Amanda, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Pete and Jared. So we want to start with a little bit of your story, because we're talking about grief today. And, and so what's your story with grief? What led you to write a book about this from the perspective that you bring? Yeah, you know, it's it's funny <laughs> when you ask me that question, I'm still sitting here thinking, I can't believe I wrote a book about grief. Because, you know, it, it, my childhood, like I can say with like 100% certainty that my childhood was just about as winsome and beautiful and idyllic of a childhood that you could possibly hope for. You know, it was a trauma-free growing up experience. I had experienced very little loss in my life, death in my life. In fact, I, I I don't think I went to my first funeral until I was maybe my late teens or early 20s. I lost a couple grandparents in my teen years, but they they lived far away and they were much 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 older when they passed away. It was a kind of the the type of losses that you see is kind of just like the natural next step in life like, you know, death in the proper order if that makes sense. And so while it was sad, it was also a celebration of their life. And so I I guess I always like looked at grief books or like people who talked about grief as being like those people, those unfortunate people that had, you know, experienced catastrophic loss or trauma or the unexpected death of someone they loved at a young age. I, I just thought that would never be me. I don't know why I thought I was immune to tragedy or that I could somehow bypass it my whole life. But I'd always just ignored resources or books or teaching on grief because I just didn't think I needed it. I I had no idea that I would need it. And so I, you know, like I said, life had proceeded very happily <laughs> until I guess I got to my early to mid 30s. I just walked through a season of loss and a series of losses. It started with the death of my grandmother, a grandmother who was really close to me. She lived nearby. She was older, but but pretty healthy when she suddenly got sick and passed away. And I was actually on a work trip in uh, Congo and East Africa when she died, and so I didn't make it home for the funeral. 
And then shortly after that, I, I had a difficult experience. I, I traveled for, for work to northern Iraq. And this was kind of during the um, offensive to take over uh, Mosul back from ISIS, which had, you know, as you may recall, had taken control of a large area of the region. And so we had victims of war coming into our hospital to receive treatment. And so I think just kind of seeing the wounds of war, seeing the effects of war on bodies and souls for the first time in person, it was just kind of this aha moment of like, wow, this level of suffering doesn't just happen on television. Like, it happens in real life. You can, you know, smell it. You can hear it. And so, just to have that, I guess, really kind of traumatic experience and to, to have that type of confrontational experience, I guess, with suffering. And then very shortly after that, about four months later, I had the first of um, what would be three miscarriages after a season of infertility. And so that that loss uh, really rocked me and my, my husband. And, um, and then about a year and a half later was when my sister got very sick. Uh, suddenly, you know, she was perfectly healthy, had a three-year-old son, an 11-month-old daughter, uh, and she became suddenly ill and died. Uh, and even saying it right now, it just feels unreal. Uh, and so that was kind of the moment. That was the shattering loss, the atomic bomb that went off in my life that really kind of set me on this journey to understand what grief is because suddenly it was my story. And so that's I, that's kind of how I started studying grief rituals and came to write this book. So, can you give a little background to your experience with grief in, in your church tradition, and how yeah. would you have been taught to handle it or not, or what would the conversations have been, and how did that lead you to going toward these practices? Yeah. Well, I, you know, I sometimes think that in some ways I had, like, white American evangelical survivor's guilt, because I, my, like, I always was part of a church that was actually... I feel like really healthy compared to many people's experiences in that culture. Um, my sister, you know, Rachel Held Evans wrote a lot about my parents and kind of the healthy um, household that we grew up in, that we were free to ask questions, that questions were safe, that we could explore our faith. And, and by and large, they had us in churches where we could do that as well. And so, it wasn't that you couldn't talk about suffering or that you couldn't talk about grief and you couldn't be honest about your pain. But there's just something, just I guess by virtue of being in the culture that was evangelicalism in the 90s, right, the height of the apologetics movement, is that we're just kind of taught to have an answer for every question. And, and it, it, evangelicalism at that time, and probably even still today, doesn't have a whole lot of capacity for mystery, if you will, like the, the mystery of grief and the mystery of suffering. And, and, and to me, there, there's a lot of mystery around death, a lot of mystery around suffering. Like, is this happening because of something wrong I did and God's disciplining me for it? Is this something that's happening? Am I just reaping what I've sowed? Is there a sin in my life? And I'm now seeing this, the fruit of that. Is this happening to me because we just live in a fallen world? 
is this happening to me? Because God's trying to teach me something, or He's trying to be glorified somehow through my story, and that's why I'm going through this. And and I I think that I just had this assumption that if I had cultivated a sound theology of suffering, that my emotional experience in suffering would somehow be more manageable, if that makes sense. Like, if I, I had just, um, if I knew all the right things about God, and if I had a solid relationship and a healthy relationship with God, that I could just pray and the peace that passes understanding would descend upon me like a dove, and somehow I would feel better, and I'd be able to discern the silver lining um, around my situation, or that I'd, I'd immediately be able to come to some conclusion as to the redemptive purpose that God was, was uh, weaving through my storyline. And I just didn't. <laughs> like, grief was absolutely horrifying. It was just emotionally just shattering. And the peace I prayed for, it didn't feel like it came. And, and I, I still don't know what the redemptive purpose of all that I've been through has been. And, and that somehow made me feel like I'd been duped in some way, or that maybe I had just Maybe maybe I had a rotten theology of suffering, or you know, maybe maybe I didn't have as close a relationship with God, and so that that was all certainly hard to process too as I was processing all of the losses. So, I, I, what I'm hearing you saying is that you, know, you you said you know if only I, I could have cultivated a sound theology of suffering, you would have had all these answers, which yeah is not sound, right? That's that that's the duping of it all, and. <laughs> From what you said before, it sounds like you've been forced to make room for the mystery of it all. That's right. Which maybe that is the sound theology. Right. And and I, I think a lot of times, you know, that, that passage is First Thessalonians four, thirteen, do not grieve as those who have no hope. I don't really cover that passage in my book. <laughs> Because I, yeah, I feel yeah. a little bit of contempt towards the way that passage has been used, because I think in many ways we kind of stop at the word grieve. We do not grieve, because mm-hmm. there's this sense in which, like, you are not supposed to be overcome by sadness. You're not supposed to be – you're supposed to be able to manage your anger or manage your sadness because you have the hope of Christ, or you have the hope of the resurrection, the hope of the afterlife. And the the, the church has had a long history of of, of this kind of teaching. Like, I, I, I remember reading about this saying from the Middle Ages, it's like the Latin is like, non culpamus effectum sed excessum, like, pardon my Latin, I don't speak Latin, I probably didn't say that right, but it basically means we do not blame the emotion, but the excess. So, this, is this idea that excessive emotion, excessive pain is somehow a sign of a lack of holiness or a lack of spiritual maturity. And what I find actually in the Bible, now that I've gone back and read it through the lens of grief, is that it's not telling us not to grieve. It's saying, yes, you have hope, but grief is still grief, and pain is still pain. And I I find a God that's actually very indulgent of strong, intense emotions, a God that, you know, is really, uh, I guess, amiable (laughs) towards His people, expressing outrage and hopelessness 
and questions, and I see that all over Scripture now, and I just it, that just somehow didn't work its way into my mindset as a as a younger believer growing up. So before we, I, I do want to go to some of those passages and and how those now maybe come more to the forefront for you. But before we do that, one of the things I really liked about your experience with the book is you talk about practices, and I know for me growing up it would have been all in our heads. It would have been, it's about emotion and it's about sadness and it feels very private and very personal, but there's this sense with the way you talk about these practices that it's embodied and it's communal in a lot of cases. And so, with that, it seems like a bit of a, a shift that I found refreshing, but what practices did you resonate with most when you went on this journey to sort of figure out how does the world grieve? What are some of these rituals or practices that people go through? Which ones did you resonate with and, and why? Jared, I'm so glad you said that because a lot of times people ask me like, well, what exactly is a ritual? And it's kind of a loose term, you know, and I, I, I get nervous when people ask me that because I'm not a cultural anthropologist. Like, I know I could give a really academic answer for all the things that qualify something as being an actual ritual. But in everything that I studied, what seems to be true, you know, if, so we sometimes use the, the word ritual to describe a habit. Like, I have my morning coffee habit or my face cream ritual, you know, my morning coffee ritual, my face cream ritual. I, I don't actually think that's a proper use of the word. I don't think anything is really a ritual until it has some kind of communal understanding or communal embodiment. And that's what's so beautiful about so many of these rituals that I studied is that they are they are done in community. They have to be done in community. And I think the one that stood out to me the most, um, you know, the way I actually stumbled across rituals in the first place was, I I guess, the algorithm on my phone knew I was grieving or something. You know, your phone knows things about you. And um, it it somehow flashed up this article on either Facebook or my news feed about um, strange grief practices from around the world and from the past. And I think the first one in the article may have been, um, it was Irish keening. And I don't know if you're familiar with Irish keening, but it's this practice of communal wailing. And so in Ireland back, you know, since, you know, 1950 was about the time that keening died out. But prior to that in Ireland, you know, people would have these wakes and in, in the home of the deceased. And the Irish are kind of known for their rowdy wakes. But kind of the climax of the wake experience was this time of communal wailing. And what would happen is these women from the community who were known in Irish as the banquinta. Quinta means cry or crier. So they were the lead criers or the lead wailers. These women would come and they would lead the whole room in a communal wail. And these women actually often served as midwives in the community as, as well. And so it's kind of interesting that they kind of knew these liminal spaces, that precipice between life and death. But but what they would do is they, they would begin by just kind of gently moaning and weeping. And then the women would start to maybe sing and, and they would sing words in tribute to the deceased. And then the, the song would eventually kind of collapse into just screams and wails. And then the whole room would join in and everyone would be wailing 
wailing over the person who had just died, but it was also really common for people to wail and tribute to their own lost loved ones who died maybe a year ago, maybe five years ago. And so they would lament together just death. And and I think what was so beautiful to me about this ritual is just the affirmation, the permission to completely fall apart in your grief. Because so often, grievers are commended for kind of keeping it together, for their resilience, for their fortitude, for their stalwart exterior. (laughs) That's what you're kind of commended for in your grief. But I think what the ancient Irish would say is like, actually, no, that's not normal. If you're not wailing, if you're not completely falling apart, that's that's not healthy. That's not good. And and to do that in a communal space together just felt like a really, really powerful act to me. And so that was one of the first rituals that really started drawing me in and, and set me out on this journey to learn about other rituals like that that may be healthy and helpful. Yeah, you know, the uh, I'm thinking back at First Corinthians, uh, First Thessalonians, rather, which you mentioned earlier. Don't grieve as those who have no hope. I think a part of the reality. I'm, I'm I'm contraposing this to what you just said with the Keening. For Paul, the hope is something that is going to be realized probably in the next 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. You know, like this is all going to come to an end. Jesus is the first fruits of the you know, the corporate resurrection of the faithful. And no, it's not going to be hundreds of years or thousands of years. It's going to be really, really soon. This is just the first phase, and the second phase is coming. So, the hope is something that is, you know something is right around the corner. Now, it turns out that that wasn't the case. And I think the realism Mm -hmm. of Keening is, I've never experienced that, and I probably never will. Because I live in the wrong culture, right? But that's there's something very sacred about that. There's something very realistic. There's something very psalmy about that of lamenting openly like that. Yeah, that's right. And it, it, you know, it is still practiced in many other cultures around the world, even to this day. And I mean. If you look at biblical texts, there's obviously a lot of wailing in Scripture. Jeremiah 9 comes to mind as this moment where God actually calls for the wailing women to come to, to lament the sin of Israel, but to lament also, you know, the 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 effects of their sin, the, the death and the loss that is all around them. And they serve as kind of this prophetic voice and that's what that was what was really compelling to me about that passage where it, you know it says i think it's consider call for the wailing women to come call the skillful women to come and then later says wailing women teach your daughters how to wail because this is an important skill set to have and so you know i just i think we live in a world that can sometimes see um, emotional breakdown or maybe even the emotions of uh, women <laughs> as a liability. And I think it's really amazing that God sees them as a holy asset, that it's, it is right and good to name what is awful and wrong and should not be. It is good to name that in an emotional way, and there's a lot of power in that. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants, 
and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S. They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes. But we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you're in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We love the process. This spring, they have their best deals online, up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for All People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener to the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at the Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. I, I think the power in that, to that example, it strikes me that, I mean, this is all about national exile. Yeah. It's not about people dying as much as it's about a nation dying, but to call upon the whalers, what that suggests to me is that's just normative in their culture. Yeah. This is just, this is not a special, this is just, it's like, it's like a funeral. It's like somebody has died. And so you've got this structure in place already that speaks to the normativity of that kind of activity in that culture, which again, we don't have. Which, by the way, you mentioned just off the top of your head before about how the keening died off in the 1950s in Ireland. Do you have yeah. any thoughts or any? Have you come across anything that explains why that sort of petered out? Yes, Pete, I do. <laughs> okay, I, no, I, folks at home, I did not set Amanda up here. This is this is not a setup. This isn't planned. Good. Okay. Well, I, I say it like that because it's just so fascinating. Because so on the one hand, it did start to die out because you know people in Ireland began to maybe travel more, be exposed to the out, uh, outside world. They maybe felt like some of the practices like this from rural Ireland were too primitive or. You 
know, they, they thought it wasn't sophisticated. And so, like, that is kind of the reason why so many rituals have died out. But, but another interesting piece about it is that the church tried to stamp out keening for years and years. I think there's even, I found a document from, you know, recorded from like the the 1600s, where they tried to issue some edict banning keening because they said it was too boisterous and it was not in 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 fitting it wasn't fitting for people who had the hope of Christ. Yay Christians, yay I know. And it's you know, I've I've wrestled a lot with this question of is the church a destroyer of rituals or is the church a caretaker and keeper of grief rituals? Because in in many ways, I I mean, I think there's some really, really beautiful grief rituals embedded into the church calendar and into our faith practices, um, rituals that name and um, help us encounter our sorrow, whether that's the Lord's Supper or, you know, the, the... Feast of the Holy Innocents, just after Christmas Day. I mean, there are there are rituals that the church maintains that are that look suffering square in the eye in a really beautiful way. But you just see these pockets throughout history of a a ritual somehow not being um, theologically up to snuff. Um, I, I think of the tolling of the bell was a ritual that was practiced widely before the 1600s, and it was believed that when someone was dying, that if you would ring the church bell, it would actually, it, it kind of created these spiritual forces that would go and do battle with the, the the dark demons of death. Like, they thought that bells had spiritual warfare power. That's why they named their bells. Like, there are names etched into bells from the 1300s, 1400s that say, I am the breaker of lightning. So, if there was a bad thunderstorm, they would toll the bell, and because they thought that that was a way to combat dark spiritual forces. If someone was dying, they would toll the bell because they thought that that would do battle uh, for the person's soul who was dying. Uh, there are bells that are named, um, again, I'm not fluent in Latin, but in, in Latin, in English, it, it, it's translated, my voice is the slayer of demons. Well, the Protestants didn't really like that because they felt like that was too similar to praying for the souls of the dead. Uh, they felt like it would kind of call that practice that they were trying to snuff out um, to mind. And so, eventually, as Protestant Christianity grew, the tolling of the bell, you know, before and after death uh, eventually died out. And it died out for a lot of other reasons. But that's just another one that comes to mind of where if something wasn't quite theologically in line, (laughs) uh, that it it got kind of squashed by the church. So... I want to go back to because I've been I've been mulling over what you said earlier, Pete, about the differences between the Hebrew Bible, the New Testament, and those different settings where we have this this exuberance or excitement or urgency in the New Testament, where it's sort of like don't there's not really a lot of room for a lot of this grief because there's there's too much to do. There's this we, this expectancy where the Hebrew Bible's filled with a history of people who have been grieving and who have these things. But I also can't help but remember, because it's a good Bible trivia question, the shortest verse in the Bible, mm-hmm. I think it's John eleven thirty five maybe, Jesus wept. And this idea too of, of Jesus participating in this mourning and this grieving, in, even in the 
even in the New Testament. And I'm wondering, do, what did you come across other passages or, or theologies that would have led to us getting disconnected from the idea of rituals around, communal rituals around mourning and grieving? Because I would guess that most cultures have historically had them, and then mm-hmm. it seems uniquely Protestant, and then in, in the last little bit of time, evangelical. Because I know for me, there were definitely thoughts of, we, we don't need to, rituals were seen as fake, because you don't need a ritual. You, yeah. God will intervene supernaturally without the ritual. The ritual feels empty. And so, what's that's the just point rote. of that? That's just a rote thing to do. Right, right, yeah, right exactly. Yeah. So, uh, that's kind of been my experience, but I don't know if you ran into other kind of theologies or, or ways of thinking about it that sort of downplayed this idea. Like, where does it come from, either in the Bible or just mm-hmm. theologies, that this isn't important? Yeah. Well, you know, I always like to make the disclaimer, I'm not a church historian or, <laughs> you know, a historian of theology. I, I do think that that attitude... The attitude of, you know, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. Like, we well, we all heard that little aphorism a lot, which is really just kind of like hyper-American individualism put into the church machine and, and spit out, you know, evangelicalism style. And and so, I think this, this idea that, like, we don't do rituals because they're rote, which is gosh, that's not at all what I found. Rituals are not these kind of rote, empty habits. They are actually just really powerful, emotionally laden um, experiences that are done in community. But we had this idea that rituals within the church um, were, yeah, were, were, were too repetitive, were too rote, and we are supposed to have this one-on-one relationship with God. And I, I guess I just, again, I think that that continues to lead us to believe that we have to somehow work through our grief with God alone. And and so, that makes it really hard when God suddenly feels absent. <laughs> and God God's presence is um, kind of hard to tangibly experience. To me, what's been most comforting in my grief has been just other believers coming alongside me in my pain and reminding me of what's true and sitting in silence with me, um, affirming that what I've experienced is awful and terrible and it's okay for me to feel awful and terrible. But, you know, I think the other thing is that we really, really like to talk about a triumphant God. Like, we really, really like to talk about the victorious resurrected Lord, and I think we sometimes don't spend enough time with the God who was defeated or the God that was put to death, the God who was the man of sorrows. So, so God not only empathizes with us in our grief and, I guess, you know, feels our pain with us, He stepped bodily into the worst pain a human can experience. Like, he subjected himself to death. And I I just, we talk a lot about the cross, but we really like to go to the resurrection. And I I don't know, I understand why we do that. I'm, I'm not saying that's all wrong. I just think that for me, 
knowing that the God that I'm looking to right now chose to allow himself to experience the deepest level of grief and allowed himself to be killed on behalf of the world, I, I just think that's really powerful. I mean, that's the piece of Christianity, the storyline, the, the narrative that to me is so, it's too unbelievable not to believe to some degree, if that makes sense. It makes tons of sense. I've heard a lot of theologians say that part of the problem is elevating the sovereignty of God as like the highest attribute. Yeah. Right. Rather than, let's say, the vulnerability of God. Yes. It's the latter one that we identify with. It seems to be the whole point of incarnation that we see God in in that light rather than the monarch on the throne, sort of a button pusher looking down. And and I I actually do th- I mean I, I I am very sympathetic to people raised in certain church traditions for whom the sovereignty of God is just it's like breathing. That's that's the most obvious thing, and everything that happens in our lives has to be reconciled with, I know that God's in charge, and I think vulnerability gives some room, again, to what you said at the very beginning, Amanda, mystery. Well, right. I mean, look at that passage of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, God arguing with God about what they're going to do, you know? Like, I don't know. I feel like I I just kind of breezed past that passage for so much of my Christian life because I just, the, the, the mystery chafed against this value of God's sovereignty and this value of being able to um, kind of uh, academically explain my theology. Um, and and I couldn't explain what happened there. I still can't explain what happened there. But after I've experienced grief, my capacity for mystery has expanded exponentially. And I think that, to me, is one of the gifts of grief. And I hesitate to even use that term because I, I, I don't like the concept of silver linings or, oh, yeah, that really bad thing happened, but... Look at all you learned from it. It's like I would I would give every lesson I've learned back to have one more day with my sister. But I will say it is a gift to have had my capacity for mystery expanded, to be able to know God in his suffering through my suffering, and even just to increase in my compassion for other people that are going through this, that has been a gift. I think there's something too, maybe even more practical going on in a lot of theologies around this, which is we've we've created Jesus into a product. Mm. And the, the need that that product fills is to make us happy, which we've defined as like not being sad and yeah. So that Thessalonians verse has been turned into uh, propaganda for that kind of theology of we don't right. grieve as those who have no hope, meaning we don't get to have funerals, we only have celebrations of life. Like, But everything is to make sure we protect the idea that Jesus turns your sadness into happiness. Like literally, right. there are Sunday school songs that say things like that. I'm trading my sorrows, right? Right, exactly. And so, I think we're incentivized not – and then what I, the reason that's particularly insidious is because it creates a shame culture yeah. where – 
we're all pretending that we're not sad about anything because that would that would undermine the product of Jesus. And so when I am mm-hmm. sad, I feel ashamed of it. Like I'm trying to hide it from my church community. That's when right. these That's other right. practices are really about enjoying it or not enjoying it, but enjoying with our community and doing that with our community, we're actually incentivized by our theology to hide it from people. That's right. Yeah, I saw something um, that another kind of grief psychologist posted the other day online, uh, Dr. Mikkel Harris, who said, you need to create spaces where you can encounter your grief without judging yourself. Something to that degree, she said it more eloquently than me. But I think that's what these rituals do is they, whether it's, you know, keening or the the practice of uh, sitting shiva, which is a, a Jewish practice. I, I looked at the practice of Decoration Day in Appalachia, which is where everyone comes once a year and decorates the graves of all of their loved ones, and they share memories, and they pray, and they cry, and they sing, and they eat together. Uh, once a year, they honor everyone that they've lost, and they honor their own stories. These practices create encounters for us to look our losses, you know, square in the face and allow ourselves to feel the anguish of it all. And I I find so many biblical texts that do that. You know, Ecclesiastes, you know, Pete, I've got your commentary on Ecclesiastes. Uh, That's exactly what Koheleth does. I mean, obviously, David does it all over the Psalms. Jesus does it. It's, It's all over Scripture, these encounters with sorrow and this honesty about the pain of life. And so, it's just, I remember the first time I read through the Bible straight through, and I thought to myself, how did, this is, how did they get so many people to believe this not not believe it maybe give their life to it it's it's not that it's not believable it's that it's not that appealing if that makes sense because it's like i want a really happy life or yeah. i'm going to be it's not a commodity it's not it's, a commodity it's like, is I, it? yeah it, it, if, if you want just happiness no suffering wealth health all those things you're not going to get that from a walk with god but what i think you do get is authenticity and the real experience of life and a God who speaks to it, a God who's lived it, a God who's experienced it, and allows you to to speak of it and and name it. And I think at the beginning of my grief, I thought to myself, I'm not sure I I'm not sure my faith is going to see me through this. I'm not sure I picked the right religion for this because I really need my religion to make me feel better right now. But now that I'm two and three years past it, and not really past it, I'm still in it, but I'm two and three years down the road, I have found that I, I ab- my faith absolutely has met me in my sorrow. The Bible met me in my sorrow, not in the way I thought it would, but in a way I needed, in a way that was real and true. It was like true in my bones. Um, And I can say that now that I'm a little bit farther down the road, but it it took some relearning and rereading and re-understanding. Took some new theology. Yeah, that's right. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. 
You know, Pete, I've been pretty emotional this week and I was trying to reflect on why that was. And it turns out, you know, my best friend from college just died. My mom's been in the hospital and I just haven't taken the time to reflect and process all of that. And it's been coming out in all these wonky ways. And that's exactly what therapy can help with. That's really been my experience with therapy as well. I've benefited tremendously from therapy. And I think lately I've been able to get to the point of why. It's learning to look at your situation more as an observer from the outside instead of just reacting to things, just thinking about it and processing the information. I find a lot of the problems become more manageable that way. And that's what therapy does for me. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BNP today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BNP. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You know, folks, I've had allergies my whole life and I never knew what to do with them. I didn't even know that I had allergies. But anyway, one day I went to the doctor several years ago and I said, listen, I keep having a stuffed nose and it's just my throat hurts and it's horrible. And he says, have you tried Claritin D? And I said, no, I haven't. And he said, you have to. See, luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescriptive strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. You know, I've been taking Claritin D for my allergies for about 15 years, and it's been an absolute life changer. I can go for hikes without my eyes watering like a fountain. I can speak without feeling like a frog has jumped into my throat, and my nose isn't stuffed all the time. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. You know, I, I, the, what you were saying before, the, the language that came to my mind is the Bible is rather unfiltered. Yeah. about grief or pain or sorrow or anger to all those emotions yeah. there's an unfiltredness to it and i'm just riffing here but i want to suggest that's not something special about the bible mm. i think people have always been that way yeah it's more i don't know why are we living in this age jared where everything's so screwed up and people think they have to have the right answers to everything it has to be a neat package this this commercialized uh, view of Christianity or, um, you know, the Protestant view that, you know, uh, like we said before, you don't have emotions about this, you rise above that. If you have emotions, it shows weakness and faith. Mm -hmm. So, grief becomes not something that the Spirit walks with you, but it becomes another test to show how good you are. Yeah. You know, and it's yeah. like... No, who who in the right mind wants that? And and death, as much as I don't wish it for anyone, but it comes. Yeah. And 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 death is maybe one of the most sobering things to drive us out of that nonsense because you go crazy trying to make it right. all work that way. But the thing, you know, I've been to many funerals, Christian funerals, where you're just not allowed to grieve. We know they're in a better place. 
We know they're up there with God doing whatever the departed's favorite hobby was, like watching hockey together or something, you know? Right. And maybe they are. I don't know. I have no idea. But that's not even the point. You know, it's, we're really sad and, and we're angry and we don't understand why this is happening. And to do that as a community is, I mean, I don't, we're so impoverished. I don't know. I don't know, Jared. I just, we're, we're so impoverished. Well, we just don't have, I plan on going through all this stuff alone. Right. <laughs> you know, because the community yeah. is just not, you know, it's, we've been sold this bill of goods that it's just you and Jesus. I think that launches into this question as we, as we wrap up our time. I think there's probably a lot of people who have that experience is, is almost like an atomistic, individualistic understanding. And, and how can we help learn to grieve better? Like what, did you learn what did you learn through this about how to grieve better if our if our church tradition and our culture didn't really give us the tools for that and we want to start how do we start hmm that's a good question i think one of the insecurities i have about the book i wrote is that i you know i don't really provide a really practical way to move forward uh, with this. Uh, you know, some people have asked me like, oh, well, is there a list of things that you suggest doing at the end of the book? <laughs> and I'm like, no, <laughs> I, I, I kind of end with a, I'm not sure. Like I, because I think Pete, you, you said it well, like I might decide that I want to enact some of these rituals in my life, but if the whole community isn't kind of joining with me and affirming me in that, then it can feel kind of empty and lonely. So, I, you know, I think, Jared, the answer to your question is just, again, goes back to that place of making space to encounter your sorrow. Like, we, we do everything we can to circumvent it, to um, bypass it. We just don't like bad feelings in this culture. We are, you know, people who who numb things. We are, you know, we can medicate basically any ailment that we experience. We are, you know, you know, people that are constantly scrolling through our phones and distracting ourselves from our pain with our screens. Uh, and so, I think it's just part of it is just stop. Yeah. Stop the noise. Pause. You know, just like give yourself a minute to to feel sad and it's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be super uncomfortable because we immediately think I want some kind of hack to like get past this, but there's no hack for grief. And so you just as part of it to me is just take take a pause and experience your sadness as uncomfortable as that is. And it, it's I think along with that it's there is a certain sense of the need to unplug completely I don't want to over-dramatize here, but to unplug completely from the theological system, which is making it so difficult for someone to grieve, which means look at these look at these grief practices. Yeah, no, I you know I as I read them, I said I wish I had this one. Oh, this one's good too. Yeah, well, I don't have any of these. You know what am I, I going to do? I, I know. You know, so we're we're left to, and I know Jared did not mean this, but some people might hear it like practical things. Jared doesn't mean to fix it. Right, I think I think Jared, you're saying practical things to show that there are no quick well, there's d- there, d- go to answers. I think for this. that I think that yeah, I think that's a good. I'm glad that you said that because there is a distinction between there are things that are helpful in our grief, but I think we when we have a framework of yeah, the most helpful thing is to not grieve. 
<laughs> then we're yeah. short circuiting the whole thing. It's like, no, that's not yeah. an option. It's yeah. Well, how do we do this in a fuller way so that we have a full expression of our feelings and emotions and we're not being asked to shove those to the side? Right. And I'm glad you asked the question, Jared, because I actually do think there are practical things that that churches can do. And so I, you know, my church here in Boone, like I'm super hashtag blessed, I guess, to have a church that actually makes space for lament in our services. And like my church community came around me in a way that was really, really beautiful and didn't try to kind of give me these pithy statements about how everything happens for a reason and like just like we have victory in Jesus, yada, yada. They, I feel like it, they actually were honest about what I was going through and made space for me to grieve. So, there are churches and faith communities that are doing this, that are taking their cues from Scripture, and sometimes it's just finding those spaces, you know? And and if you are a church or in church leadership, paying attention to how this can be done well, um, because there are grievers in in your pews. I mean, grievers are everywhere. They're hiding. We don't wear black anymore. I write about that in the book. But, it, you know, it's there are grievers everywhere, people that are suffering under the silent tyranny of grief, and we need to make space with them in our, in our rhythms and our, and our habits and our, our Sunday practices so that they can have those encounters with their grief and be affirmed for what they're feeling. So, see the normalcy of grief around us. Yeah, that's that's a really... Really good point. And, and again, I'm being harsh. I think, you know, and Pete, you've been a little harsh too. And I think for good reason of, you can say normalize it. But again, when you say that, like creating space, I just think I have flashbacks of all my church experiences where like the the explicit tone that you're told anyone who's going to be up front or anything is all smiles yeah. and happiness yeah. and fun. And this is not a sad place. And so, I would like, can we even just get to like neutral um, <laughs> You're right. Like we're so hyper focused on making everything happy. Yeah. Like that is not going to be a safe place. Again, I just come back to that like shame of like if I'm grieving, the that's a place I'm not even going to want to be. Yeah. Yeah. It's just it's making space for both. You know, like to for the full spectrum of life, and we don't we don't do that well in church sometimes because sadness doesn't sell. Happiness is what sells. But you know, apparently, um, you know, like you said. This faith of ours is not a commodity. It's a it's a way of life. It's a calling, and and like I said, sometimes you just have to find those spaces and those people that are willing to do that with you and for you, and be faithful in that. Yeah. Well, listen, Amanda, we really appreciate you being on the podcast with us to talk about this universal topic. Right. We all we all connect sooner or later, one way or the other, with it. So. Thank you for your time. Thank you for writing this beautiful book too. And we hope people go out and buy it and and learn from it and and um, think for themselves how maybe their lives can be different by processing the reality of death differently for themselves and for others. Well, thanks, Pete. Thanks, Jared. It's been it's been great talking to you. You just made it through another entire episode of the Bible for Normal People. Well done to you. And well done to everyone who supports us by rating the podcast, leaving us a review, or telling others about our show. We are especially grateful for our producers group who support us over on Patreon. They are the reason we are able to keep bringing podcasts and other content to you. So a big thanks to Lauren O'Connell, 
Brad Harris, Joel Thompson, Jacqueline Van Beek, Chuck Beam, Joel Herring, Jerry L. Lewis, Isaiah Wilson, Chris Pearson, and Esther Goetz. If you would like to help support the podcast, you can head over to patreon.com slash the Bible for normal people, where for as little as $3 a month, you can receive bonus material, be part of an online community, get course discounts, and much more. We couldn't do what we do without your support. Our show is produced by Stephanie Spade, audio engineer Dave Gerhardt, creative director Tessa Stoltz, marketing director Savannah Locke, and web developer Nick Striegel. For Pete, Jared, and the entire Bible for Normal People team, thanks for listening. <laughs>